I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending September 11th. In this episode, many of us have been pretty connected for a while. Globally speaking, the number of connected devices today averages six per person. As we rev into the Internet of Things, there's an estimate that in just 10 years, there will be 50 connected devices per person. In this episode, we speak with Tyson Tuttle, CEO of Silicon Labs, about the Internet of Things and the prep work that the electronics industry is doing to get the IoT ready for a significant expansion. Also, we might be disappointed with the indefinite delays to autonomous vehicles and now some delays to some advanced driver assist technologies, but it is undeniable that the automotive market is making some incredible advances with machine vision systems. We talk with Rob Stead, the guy who's been helping to teach the automotive industry how to see. We've all got lots of connected devices, and we've had most of them for a good many years. A lot of us have had at least a smartphone and maybe a laptop and a game console and a smart TV. But that's stuff we interact with daily. What makes the Internet of Things so different? Until recently, almost all of the connected devices we've been using are things we interact with directly and frequently. Our phones and TVs, for example. The twist with the IoT is it will be comprised of devices that people don't interact with very often or at all. Instead, these are devices that are connected so that they can interact with other electronic systems. On the market today, for example, we have smart thermostats and smart door locks and smart light bulbs. And more different devices are coming. A lot more. Today, the IoT is all about ecosystems, and islands. There are multiple companies that make IoT devices, but those devices tend to interact only with other devices from the same company or its corporate allies. Each of those companies or groups of companies is an ecosystem unto itself. Also, any installation of IoT technology is likely to be its own little island. It might be a smart home or it might be a smart factory, for example. But whatever it is, odds are that it's isolated. It is difficult for other IoT devices to gain access or be granted access. A lot of companies have been working to figure out how to mix and match devices from different ecosystems and how to bridge islands. For example, about a year ago, Amazon began a project it calls Sidewalks. The idea was to use 900 megahertz spectrum to connect sensors and smart devices not only inside a home, but all around it, and then to further connect those homes together. At the time, the company had already conducted an experiment with employees and their friends and their families. They installed these devices around their homes, but then also connected individual points into a network that Amazon said covered much of the Los Angeles basin. This week, the Zigbee Alliance, the industry organization that oversees the Zigbee Low Power Communications Protocol, proposed a project called Connected Home Over IP, CHIP for short. The Zigbee Alliance formed a working group whose goal is to simplify the development of connected products for manufacturers. Now, the ultimate goal is for those manufacturers to turn around and create smart home products that will be secure, 
reliable, and seamless to use. Three of the titans in smart home appliances, Amazon, Apple, and Google, are participating, as are IKEA, NXP Semiconductors, Samsung SmartThings, Schneider Electric, Signify, which was formerly Philips Lighting, Silicon Labs, and others. Silicon Labs just hosted a virtual conference about the Internet of Things, which it called the Works With Smart Home Developer Event. My colleague Junko Yoshida and I got on the line with Silicon Labs CEO Tyson Tuttle, who, by the way, said he was physically in the Silicon Labs corporate offices for the first time in months. We talked about the IoT, the CHIP project, and the notion behind works with. Here's Junko. We were at the keynote speech earlier today, and um, you know, you said something interesting. Today, a person has six internet-connected devices per person in the world. And 10 years from now, it'll be 50. Is that what you said? 50 devices per person in 10 years. Yeah, wow. which is which is a you know an incredible growth and opportunity for the industry overall, not just for the semiconductor industry, but also uh, you know device makers and ecosystem providers. And if you think about all the data and the applications that get enabled by that sort of a you know a, a deployment, uh, it's just it's incredible. You know, it's it's impossible to imagine almost. Yeah, can I ask you that? How many? So, so what kind of six devices do you have? How many connected devices do you have today? Yourself. Oh, well, I, I'm, I'm maybe a little bit ahead of my, uh, uh, you know, the, the average there. <laughs> I think I've got over 100 devices in my house. All my, you know, quite a few light bulbs and, uh, and switches, dimmers and things like that. Uh, you know, voice assistants, thermostats. Uh, you know, the, I have a swimming pool. So we have, uh, you know, all of that controlled. And uh, yeah, a lot of different stuff. And actually, my, my kids have, have started doing these, these IoT you know, projects at home where they, they connect, uh, you know, a, a, a dev kit up and, and start, start to make things. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're on the, on the avant-garde, the cutting edge of, uh, of connected devices in, in the Tuttle household, for sure. You definitely are, because I think Brian and I are more of a trading edge, I guess. Uh, we recently had this discussion of we're griping about that, how things don't get connected. Yeah, that's that's one of the big challenges is, you know, we we tend to to get different things and and devices are stuck on different ecosystems and we end up using different applications on our on our phones or different websites to go and control various things. And so making these these devices work with each other uh, and and, you know, you have large companies like Amazon and Apple and Google and Comcast and and others that are trying to pull all, all of this together. And, uh, you know, just just today, we, we uh, started our our conference here, the, our first virtual conference called Works With, uh, where we are uh, bringing all of these different players together to talk, you know, across the protocols and how the devices talk to one another, how to onboard devices onto these ecosystems, and also make sure that we don't leave older technologies or, or legacy devices behind, but that we're also thinking about how all this can come together in the future. Right. So let's, uh, you know, I was actually surprised when I uh, listened to the uh, the first panel that uh, Matt Johnson moderated. Uh, the Your guests included the gentleman from Amazon, Google, and Comcast, I think. 
And uh, every single person pretty much talked about how difficult it is actually to connect things together, especially at a time there's a number of hardwares to deal with, number of new services coming up. There are a number of new features they want to put in. So integrate them together is really a hard thing. And I was thinking, like, didn't he, didn't I hear this like five years ago when we're talking about IoT? We always talk about oh, it's well, we've been talking about this kind of stuff for a long time, right? You know, we've right? had machine to machine, and and really, if you think about IoT, it's a new paradigm. When when you have a, a PC or a handset, it's actually a person interacting with the device, and so that's the the interface, and and it doesn't the the devices don't have to talk to each other in the same way. When you have, for instance, a light bulb on one ecosystem and a light switch on another ecosystem, if they don't talk, this, they need to, to know how to talk to one another. And in some ways, we've had a bit of a tower of Babel. Uh, not only did we have you know, different wireless protocols, but devices, sometimes they speak their own language. Sometimes they might speak Zigbee or Z-Wave. And uh, so, so figuring out how to how to converge that so that the devices can talk to one another, and they can talk to each other locally, they can talk together at a gateway, or they can talk together in the in the cloud. And that is, you know, a lot of companies have been working towards converging these, but there's a growing momentum among the biggest players in the industry to really drive standardization and and drive ease of use and and make all of these things work together. And that's just we see just incredible momentum right now. And that's why we thought this year for the first time having this, our works with conference. And, you know, the other interesting thing about this is that when we planned this, you know, you and I I think you and I talked about this at CES uh, back in January, and we didn't really understand what was, uh, you know, right in front of us at that time. But, uh, you know, we we were going to do this as an in-person conference here in Austin. And we were planning about 1200 people. And we, we, you know, we had, uh, uh, you know, a lot of interest in sponsors, but we decided to to just take this completely virtual. So Tyson, can I ask you something? When you first decided to do this works with conference, did you already know, were you already aware that the project CHIP, uh, CHIP stands for Connected Home Over IP Project, that was just about to, about launched in December last year, no? Yeah, I mean, we had been working with the Zigbee Alliance and with Google and with others. You know, really, when when the entire chip initiative got formed and before it was publicly announced, and then you know there there was a lot of work before the announcement to talk about you know exactly what application layer will be used and you know how how Thread would get integrated into that and. Uh, you know, integrated into the Zigbee Alliance, and so uh, yeah, we we were a founding member of the uh, of the Chip Alliance, and then and then had been working on that for some period of time. But I know that we we talked about that a lot uh, back in back at CES, and and that's a that's a hot topic here at the Works with Conference. Can you just uh, give us like uh, uh, thirty seconds or one minute uh, overview of what exactly Project Chip is? Yeah, so uh, project it's called Connected Home over IP, and it's uh, essentially a uh, a language that devices will know how to speak. It's it's really using the the way Zigbee devices have talked to one another, but it runs over IP, so it, it leverages the internet protocol. Uh, so using each device will have an IP address. So whether it's a, a thread device, which is an IP based network or a Wi-Fi uh, network, which also has IP, the devices will be talking internet protocol to one another, 
but then they'll be using the language that's specified by connected home over IP or chip. And that is based on the, the Zigbee cluster libraries, which is essentially, this is how a door lock will talk. This is how a light bulb will talk. This is how a sensor will talk and standard commands. So that will be standardized. And so that's uh, essentially, and then you will onboard devices with Bluetooth, Bluetooth low, low energy to be able to talk to mobile devices to commission. And then it also takes into account things like device updates and security protocols and, and, and that sort of thing to develop you know, a common language that devices can speak, can join common networks. And then as you develop applications around those, how to interface with those and, and be able to interface with the devices in a standard way. So when a device, when you go in, you know, in the future, when you go in device and it has the chip logo on it, you will know that, that you know, it, it will go through a certification process and you will know that that will be able to join the network and be able to integrate into these ecosystems automatically. Yeah, I think one of the participants in the panel was talking about this would allow developers to spend less time in plumbing and instead focus on applications. Is that correct? Yeah, well, and, and focus on on differentiating the devices themselves. Um, you know, and, and as a semiconductor provider, you know, we have to we support essentially all of the IoT protocols, you know, uh, wireless protocols, whether it's a Zigbee, Z-Wave, uh, open thread, you know, using the chip protocol, uh, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. And then there are a lot of uh, applications that use proprietary protocols as well. So anything that that makes that easier for device developers to uh, to onboard into and and makes makes uh, developing, you know, you maybe they don't have to develop quite as much of the system and they can leverage some of this work that's been done, you know, through code sharing or through the availability of cloud services and things like that. That makes it easier for everyone and helps us overall grow the IoT market and the smart home market uh, to and to accelerate that growth, uh, which is going to be good for everyone, you know, but both consumers and people who are making devices. All right, but previously, uh, one of the differentiations that the Silicon Labs actually presented to the industry was that you did actually have all those um, connectivity chips that support different protocols, right? But now you're saying that because the connection, connectivity, conversion of connectivity layers is kind of a, you don't really have to worry about it. Well, you, st you still have all of the different connectivity layers and you still need to, you know, have a chip and, and uh, you know, uh, a wireless device and all that sort of stuff. But if you, if you think about what device makers were having to do is they would have to navigate each of these protocols and the certifications and then they would have to develop applications uh, that, you know, now you can just integrate that into, for instance, uh, you know, the Google Home application or, or the Amazon Alexa application and to be able to control the devices. So they may not have to do as much of the, of the cloud connectivity and applications uh, once, once this standard comes into place. So it'll be easier to do, you will have to do less work to get a device into place. You still have to design the device and, and uh, you know, do the programming to do, and that's where I think you know the device makers and certainly the semiconductor providers are going to are going to focus the differentiation. But it will it will kind of unify. And and if you even think about it from a from a user standpoint, you know, instead of having ten apps on your phone to control your house, that can all get then integrated more seamlessly into a common user interface. So this spec uh, will be uh, completed at the end of this year, or how, or next year? Uh, what's the schedule? 
Uh, I mean, the goal uh, for a number of product companies is that by the end of next year, we will have devices on the market with chip. And so the device specification is nearing completion now. Uh, I believe that it will be uh, launched here towards the end of the year. I, I actually don't have the, the precise date. We, <laughs> we, uh, our team, and we, you know, we, we're actually one of the largest, we're the largest semiconductor contributor to the chip specification and to the code base. Um, so we're, they're working feverishly to, uh, to finalize those specifications and then also how to make some of the legacy protocols work with um, chip and do the translation layers at the gateway so that you can also use all of your, all of your other devices as well. So I wanted to ask about uh, some of the security aspects. Um, I sat in with a session today um, with Matt, who uh, who had mentioned um, security. What you know, maybe four, even a couple of years ago, you might have like, well, do you put security? Where do you put? He says whether or not you do security is no longer debatable. You have to do it, and, and Silicon Labs has been uh, active. Um, adding security to its product portfolio. But as you've been mentioning throughout this conversation, there are multiple different ecosystems uh, for IoT. Um, Nobody expects a grand unified theory of security tomorrow, but can you talk about what the security environment is like today with multiple ecosystems and whether a grand unified theory is possible someday? Yeah, so uh, having bulletproof security, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that means, is, is something that needs to be integrated into every device that gets hooked to a network. And that means that you've got hardware security so that you can't hack into a device from a hardware standpoint. And that, that requires some very sophisticated design on the chip to do, you know, random number generators and, you know, detection of tampering and, uh, you know, so that you can't pull signatures and keys out of, out of a chip. And, and, you know, that, that's an ongoing frontier of, uh, of, you know, it's almost like a, another war (laughs) between the hackers and the, and the hardware makers. And, and so, uh, you know, designing in, and, and you think about like your credit card, right? You've got the little, the little chip inside your credit card that you put into the device. And, you know, it's a payment grade security and being able to integrate that into every single IOT device at the chip level cost effectively and to where it operates with very low power is essential. And so that's, that's what we, uh, we announced today uh, with, uh, with the works with conference uh, that the, our, our new security framework that uh, uh, is integrated onto the chip. But then you also, that, that, touches every touches the supply chain those chips uh, need to have the keys loaded onto them during the the manufacturing process that those have to be shared um, you know as the encryption happens between the device um, and and the cloud that has to be standardized and so so working through um, you know all of the various aspects of security standardizing it so that it comes you know by default with the devices and it's not optional, you know, oh, well, I'll put security in, but I don't want to pay for it. It, it needs to be a, you know, it's just like a serial port almost, or a, you know, uh, you know, a standard feature on the chip. And so we're, we're really, you know, leading the way on the integration of that, you know, payment level security and, and secure element functionality into, uh, you know, our whole series two 
set of devices and, and then working within the standards to make sure that that is supported in a way that everyone can deploy it. There's, uh, again, earlier, we, Junko and I were, were laughing with you about our inability to, you know, connect things. Um, I suppose if you're going to buy, say, for example, a bunch of stuff from Nest, you're likely to buy more Nest things. But I would imagine that as time goes on, people might want to uh, integrate a camera from environment A and, you know, a doorbell with a embedded vision from, from ecosystem B. If they don't both have a chip from Silicon Labs in it, is, is that an issue from a security standpoint? And, and if it is, I mean, how do you anticipate dealing with that kind of a, kind of an ecosystem? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's one reason why we support all of the various protocols and, and, you know, you want to be able to, uh, you know, to work with all these various protocols and they'll come together at a gateway or at a phone, uh, for instance, and you, and we want to make them talk to one another, but, but sta- supporting standards, you know, like Wi-Fi, Z-Wave, Zigbee, OpenThread and chip, uh, it's not just, you, you know, all the companies are going to work. To, if you think about the Wi-Fi ecosystem, for instance. And, you know, you've got Broadcom and Qualcomm and MediaTek and Silicon Labs and now NXP and, and a lot of other providers that, you know, is, if, if working within that standard, all those devices work together. And, and they also, uh, you know, will, will uh, you know, support backward compatibility, forward compatibility, standard ways of doing security that, you know, have been upgraded over time. And there, there have been switches uh, you know, in the standard where if you want the more advanced security, then all your devices need to support that standard security. And so that, you know, that's done in a, in a transparent and open way across companies. So it's not just, you know, oh, you have to come to Silicon Labs for everything. In fact, you know, we, on the Z-Wave standard, we acquired Z-Wave a couple years ago from Sigma Designs, and that was a closed standard. It was, you had to come to us to get the, the Z-Wave chips. And we actually made a decision at the end of last year to open up that standard. And to uh, to bring in third party device, you know, other other semiconductor companies to uh, to provide Z-Wave chips and support the protocol and to support, you know, bringing them into the Z-Wave alliance and through the certification process. So it's I think it's really, really important that we don't you know, there's a lot of walled gardens within the IoT world. That's each one of those apps. You know, my garage door is on a different app than my air conditioner, than, you know, the pool or the lighting control and. And, uh, you know, being able to bring those together and those can come together in the cloud, but a lot of times there's too much delay or, you know, if your internet connection is down, you know, your lights don't work. That's not a very good outcome for anybody. <laughs> well, you I, can't I, get I, into I, the house. Right, yeah. <laughs> I, I will get, I will get that frequent, uh, call from my wife. Uh, you know, actually I, I, this is a sad story, but I, I had an older lighting system control system in my house that used power line networking. And I, and I got a new air conditioner that had a variable speed. And like when, when it hit a certain temperature outside, all the lights in the house would stop working. And, you know, that that caused some serious marital friction, you know. So there was a, you know, a motivation to upgrade that to a, uh, you know, more modern wireless sort of technology that didn't get, uh, you know. So you want things to work and you want them to work easily and you don't want to have to think about what's behind them. And you want, you know, you're, you need all of the companies working together to converge this stuff. And that's, that's really what we're trying to accomplish this week with the Works With conference is, is how do we figure out 
how to do these things in such a way that it makes it easy. Like it's electric, you know, when you plug something into the electric outlet, you just expect it to work. When you bring, you know, an IOT device and set it up, you want it to just work. And it's, you know, it, it, admittedly, it's not as easy as it should be right now. We've got a lot of work to do, but uh, you know, the, all the companies working, I mean, when you see Amazon, Apple and Google all at the table, all on the same panel, you know, talking about how this is all going to come together. That's, that's a really good sign. And, and, you know, I, I was, I was, you know, I was extremely pleased to see this come together and see, you know, them almost, you know, mirroring the same sort, sort of, uh, you know, everyone sees the same challenges and working together, we can solve those challenges. When you have to support, you know, thousands of different, you know, device types. Um, and it's a very complicated challenge. Um, from here, from right now, where we are today, where a lot of people do actually buy connected devices, but a lot of them are not set up or a lot of them are not used, maybe in drawers or closet. That's, if we think that's today, that's what it is today, 10 years from now, I mean, how long do you, I mean, is that 10 years a good, good benchmark? Where will, will, will we be? In you know, I, I think that, you know, if you just look at the number of devices shipped per year, we're on about a 20 to 25 percent CAGR uh, okay. over that time frame. So, you know, we talked about, you know, 50 devices per person in the world. That's yeah. that's a lot. Right. You know, that's hundreds of billions that's five, of devices. Five years, it was ten, five years from now. That's right? I, I think that that's five years from now. Yeah. Right. Or was that 10? I, I, it's one of those. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Soon <laughs> we'll enough, check. one way or another. <laughs> we'll check yeah. that out. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, and, and yes, yeah, some of those devices will be deprecated. You know, look, you, you have a phone and two, three years from now, you'll, you'll get rid of that one and, and get another one. Uh, I think that the, the, the lifetimes that people expect for IoT devices are much longer than that. In fact, we, we, de we design our chips to have 10-year battery life, you know, from a coin cell battery for sensors and things like that. Um, and, and people expect, you know, not just the battery to last a long time, but for these, these devices to continue to live and be useful over, over that sort of a time scale. Um, you know, so I, I, I think that over that time frame, that people will see this as, you know, something that's much easier than it is today and much more integrated where they, they know that if they bring this device in, it's going to do something that it's going to connect in with other things. And the more things get connected, it's, it's Metcalf's law. When when you have two things, they're useful. But when you have you know four, it's it's the square law, right? You know, so the more and more things you have, and the more and more data you collect, the more useful that information is, and the bigger the value and the impact that you can have. Is there anything that you can think of that really doesn't need to be connected? Gosh. I don't know. My dog needs to be connected for sure. <laughs> you know, I, 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 my, kids, my kids are already connected. <laughs> toothbrush. My toothbrush has a Bluetooth chip in it now. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, your pill bottle needs to have, you know, something to make sure that you take it. Uh, you know, maybe a, maybe a can of, uh, you know, a can of water or something like that doesn't need to be connected. You know, your can or, opener. Do you need to connect your can opener? No. <laughs> Oh, yeah. You know, every time I have a beer, they probably should be counted. Exactly. They should be counting. How many bottles did Tyson consume? That, that, that would, you know, I could get a warning that says, you know, you need to drink less beer. So, uh, you know, that would probably be a good thing for me. So, uh, you know, I think that we're going to see 
things that get connected that surprise us. You know, it, look, look in the pandemic, right? A lot of the medical devices, your thermo, you know, your thermometer, your mm-hmm. pulse oximeter, we've seen a big, you know, uptake of things like, you know, continuous glucose monitors, mm-hmm. w- which is incredibly transformative to people with diabetes, where you can have, you know, a continuous reading of your, your, you know, glucose level in your blood. You have a, an insulin pump and a connection to your phone to be able to monitor everything. And it's basically, you know, helping people live much, much better lives and safer lives and longer lifespans. That was Tyson Tuttle, CEO of Silicon Labs. The virtual conference that Silicon Labs just hosted was over before this podcast first aired. But the program is still online, and the recordings of the keynotes and the sessions remain available, free to view. If you'd like to visit, we have a link to the Works With event. Find it on this podcast episode's webpage, which you will find at www.eetimes.com slash podcasts. Cameras and smartphones did more than just put a huge crimp in the standalone digital camera market. They helped drive down the cost of cameras so that they became affordable in so many other applications, notably vehicles. About five years ago, the same time the prices were coming down, the automotive industry got very ambitious. There was a lot of talk about being able to commercialize self-driving vehicles in 10 years and perhaps in as few as five. We know now that the conservative estimate from back then was way too optimistic. That said, auto manufacturers began installing cameras, which were used to add a lot of interesting features that included rear-view screens for backing up, warning drivers about oncoming vehicles, collision avoidance, and warning drivers when they were drifting out of their lanes. These all fall into the category of assisted driving technology. The acronym is ADAS. Rob Stead has been facilitating the development of a lot of this. He's the founder of the AutoSense conferences, and until recently he was the chairman of the IEEE committee that was developing standards for automotive image quality. That standard is designated IEEE P2020. The first AutoSense was held in 2016. There are now several each year, and the next two are AutoSense Brussels, which begins in just a few days, and AutoSense Detroit, which will start in late October. Of course, the pandemic has shut down travel, and even when conferences have a location in their names, they're virtual, and so by default global. AutoSense Brussels will begin on September 14th which means it was a good time to call up Rob and get an overview of where the automotive sensing market is and where it's going. Once again, I was on the call with my colleague, Junko Yoshida. You'll hear her voice first. So tell me about how the conversation around ADAS and AV have transformed over the last five years. Even five years ago or a little bit before that, there there were... There were relatively few deployments of cameras in vehicles. Um, there was a small number of ADAS applications that were, that, that have been using cameras, um, and and I guess one of the the things, the contrasts for me when we started AutoSense was looking at the ambitions of the companies and and the future 
that that will still I still believe we will get there in terms of very high levels of autonomy, very high, high levels of safety. But that contrast between what was available on the market at that time. So, so that was very clear to me then. Um, what we set AutoSense up to do was to try and support the engineering community uh, in the day-to-day -day tasks and the day-to-day -day steps that are going to get us from that reality today towards that future. Um, I looked around and I saw lots of conferences talking about this magical future of, of self-driving, flying cars, uh, you know, the, the back to the future uh, scenario. Um, but what we really wanted to do was to get into the nitty gritty and to work and understand, okay, what is, what is an engineer trying to solve today and tomorrow when they're going, uh, going to the office? Um, and, and, and I think, you know, one thing or the main thing that we, we've learned over those few years is how difficult the, the challenge is of using vision and perception systems uh, to allow vehicles to, to drive themselves. Um, so we've seen uh, changing ambitions, you know, drawing back hey, some, some of these timelines. But again, I think that's okay. It's okay to be ambitious and then to realize, hey, this is really hard. So let's concentrate on the steps that are going to get us there. Um, but I think the main thing that's happened from a technical point of view that I've seen is this, this growing understanding of the special uh, conditions, the special use cases for automotive cameras. I mean, nobody thought you could just take a camera phone and stick it in a car and then the car can drive. Of course, it's not that simple, but I think there wasn't really an understanding of how difficult uh, some of those scenarios can be. And a lot of the people I know and, and, and I've, I've worked with uh, uh, via the, the, the working group that I used to chair, but uh, the people that are speaking at the conference, you know, they're the ones who, who've realized this and, and are doing lots of great work to push the boundaries and address those really complicated use cases. Well, that's really fascinating because uh, last week we had, uh, uh, on last week's podcast, we had a guest who was talking about machine vision and uh, talking about how um, the difference between just simply uh, getting a, a visual signal and an image and sending it somewhere for review later and actual perception or, or you know, seeing, if you will. Um, and his take was only now after maybe 10, 15 years of, of development with uh, the marriage with artificial intelligence, um, are you are we beginning to see uh, some really cool things with real machine vision uh, in in real time? Things like um, and one of the things he mentioned was uh, the facial recognition you get on your phone on your smartphones. Um, now you've just been invoking special cases for automotive. So I wanted to see if I could get you to um, explore uh, the, the notion of where machine vision has been in uh, the technology involved with machine vision and how that intersects with automotive. Right. So yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I think you're right. We've, we've seen so many advances uh, in this whole space of AI and deep learning uh, and those type of approaches to, to, to solving some of these problems. Um, again, sometimes associated and overhyped, uh, but absolutely these are really important tools to help us 
create robustness within our systems and, and they can be incredibly useful for these kind of tasks. Um, again, it's a learning process. Uh, I think we haven't necessarily realized some of the limitations. We haven't realized the level of training, some of the complications that can come from uh, false identifications or as, as they call adversarial uh, examples. So so again, it's a learning process and, and, and automotive brings with it a bunch of specific use cases, recognizing road signs. Uh, it's a really complicated environment out there. You're moving very quickly. Uh, so it's it's a whole different world from from any other imaging application. Um, and when I say imaging, I don't just mean cameras. I mean you know there's other there's other sensors out there, um, obviously. And and one of the important things is making sure that we we kind of have a robustness across those 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 different sensor modes. Yeah, I think when compared to camera phones, um, whether today's iPhone can do the uh, you know can can unlock the phone with face you know face recognition, that's a great advance. But at the same time, I think automotive has gone really further in terms of not just doing uh, using camera to recognize something but it is as rob said it is about robustness it, it is mm -hmm. about how you actually use different types of sensor and fuse them so that the outcome of the perception is much closer to what we actually humans can perceive is that right rob right i i think so and and it's to uh to, to drop in a very old adage it's horses for courses um i don't know if that's a, a phrase you use in the in the states no uh, but 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 basically what i mean there is using the right technology for the right application um so i often quote a fantastic presentation i went to a couple of years ago which was which was automotive based but, but wasn't uh, anything to do with, uh, with with camera technology or perception. It was actually to do with fuel and looking at the different powertrains and looking at uh, what the fuel kind of ecosystem will look like in the future. And it was talking about, you know, you will still actually have diesel because if you think about a quarry truck, the, the best way of powering a quarry truck is actually diesel. But if we only have a few of those and they're in a, in a, in a, in a controlled environment, then the pollution isn't necessarily so much of an issue. Actually, diesel engines for road cars are pretty good, but in the future, we'll probably have a wide range of different powertrain options, depending on the use case of the vehicle. And I think the same is, is, is true within perception systems. Um, we're still working it out. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have a range of different applications, a range of different types of vehicle. There isn't just one solution, one perception system that's going to work for every vehicle. Inner city vehicles have different use cases from cross-country vehicles, from trucks. So I think it's about learning how to adjust the system capabilities to, to those use cases. Um, but I come back to, to, to the earlier question about uh, machine vision and just just to illustrate one of the the challenges there that I think maybe uh, you know wasn't necessarily identified uh, a, f a few years ago, but if you if you think about the the AI driven processes that we have for object recognition and uh, and classification, um, if you think about that and then you have that with a, a stitched image from uh, from a surround view camera system or something like that. You are, you are having to train the system to 
stitch the image and then recognize the object within that stitched image. Uh, that probably isn't the most efficient way to do things and it makes it incredibly difficult. Um, so, uh, you know, again, we're learning about these cases all the time, uh, but I think we have to, we have to look forwards to, 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 to be really flexible in our approach and use the right technology um, for, for, for the right application. With an automobile, you've got multiple sensors, vision, LIDAR, radar, and other things as well. Um, that's got to complicate the whole system several fold, yes? Yeah, ab absolutely. It can complicate the system, but I think with that complexity comes comes robustness. Um, but but to yeah to go back to uh, where we started with how have things changed since the beginning of AutoSense, I think that's one of the biggest changes that that I've seen is almost a blurring of the boundaries between the different sensor modes. Uh, so when we started in 2015, I wanted to include a section on radar, and nobody really wanted to talk about radar. Um, Continental were were producing pretty much all of the radars. There was a few little bits of discussions going on about producing higher resolution radars and looking at different types of technology. And over the last five years, we've really seen that uh, grow significantly. And there's lots of lots of new interesting approaches using radar there. Uh, obviously, we all know LIDAR. I think LIDAR is almost a household name by now, uh, or it seems so to me. I, I mentioned it to my mum, she might not think so. Um, but, uh, you know, we've seen so much go on within LIDAR, all the different types of modalities. Uh, everybody, everybody thinks they've got the best LIDAR. I don't know. I can't tell you which one's the best. But what I can tell you is there's still a big discussion about is LIDAR still needed? Many people think it is. We've got cameras that are, are now uh, using using uh, stereo cameras to uh, again claim that uh, that we can uh, we we can have a similar effect to lidar. So we're seeing a blurring of the boundaries between all of these different sensors, and I think that's really interesting within itself. Um, it's good though because we 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 do need multiple different sensors um, to give us that robustness. They might be multiple different cameras. Um, they might be a mixture of different sensor modalities. Um, you know, there are other people far more qualified than me to talk about that in, in technical detail. Uh, but certainly that, that blurring of the boundaries, I think, is fascinating as, 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 we, as, as the technologies advance and uh, become more efficient and, and grow in their capabilities. Yeah, one thing actually interesting about AutoSense is that uh, it's not just each vendor uh, who supplies certain technology, pitches his own technology, which is good. But also there will be a panel sessions or the keynote that really focuses on a bigger topic, right? A uh, bigger topic such as um, let's talk about operational design domain, right? ODD. Or let's talk about the, how we validate each of these sensors actually work. Um, so it's sort of like a, the overarching Theme. It's, it's, it's one thing to pitch one technology, but it's another to have the discussion on the, when we combine them all together, what are we still missing? That's a kind of, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's a great conference because it's a, we never run out of topics to discuss, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and one of the things that, that uh, I, I like is, 
well, I like the fact that these problems are very difficult to solve um, because it keeps people motivated. Uh, everybody that I meet at the conference, you know, it's a meeting of minds. It's a meeting of, of engineers and scientists. Um, and uh, my, my team get bored of me saying this, but uh, but somebody left in their feedback after after one of our first events. They said, I love coming to AutoSense because I can take the gloves off and just be a scientist and talk to other other scientists. You know, it's not about competing different businesses. Uh, it's about coming together to, to try and uh, move forward as an industry with some of these these very big technical challenges. But yeah, so, some of the questions that were there five years ago are still there right now. Uh, so this this discussion around centralized or distributed processing, smart sensors on the edge or centralized processing. Uh, again, there's still very, very strong feelings on, on, on both ways uh, of approaching that. And what I find fascinating is that uh, that doesn't mean that the conversation gets boring either. So even though you're having the same debate, it's done within the context of the science moving on. So it's not actually the same conversation. The debate is still the same, but the conversation has moved on and is and is different. Um, and, and and again, I, I I think that's good. There's a lot of passionate people uh, who who come to AutoSense, and the panel discussions are, are definitely definitely some of my favorite sections. Do you find so so when engineers get together, they want to solve a problem, and, and then. They're all working for automakers who are intensely competitive. And then you have a separate uh, constituency, and that's uh, maybe governmental agencies who want to make sure that there's a, a minimum level of, of security across. And so I guess this is kind of like a business and sociological question. So, you know, but, but anyways, so you've got maybe engineers and and regulators who have maybe a kind of a, you know, congruent interests and the automakers perhaps in between who still want to, are very intensely competitive. Um, can I get you to, to talk about that dynamic? Yeah, I, I can certainly try. I mean, I, I have an experience quite close to my heart uh, uh, that addresses that. Um, so when I started uh, Sense Media and we were looking to, to, to build AutoSense initially, I also knew from talking to the engineers um, that, that I knew that there was a growing, uh, a, a growing recognition that uh, there was a need to talk about standards uh, for, for imaging systems and to have a more collaborative approach um, so that it would be possible to to basically compare compare uh, you know compare apples to apples. I think one of the one of the challenges uh, that the industry was having, uh, well, and still has to some extent, is you know if manufacturer A or tier one A is talking about a, a camera system uh, and quoting some performance characteristics, and then tier one B is talking about their camera system and quoting some different performance metrics. It's very difficult for, for the OEM to be able to look at both of those systems and try and work out which is going to work best. So that conversation was actually going on within within uh, the, the tier ones. And uh, I wanted to try and help. And so 
at the same time as launching AutoSense, uh, I also uh, helped to set up the IEEE Standards Association Working Group uh, at P2020 um, to try and start addressing some of those some of those issues. So to take all of the common ways of, of, of measuring the performance of an automotive camera system and 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 to publish a standard that the industry can sign off on and say, look, this is this is how we recognise we can measure the performance of the system. So the the great thing about that is it's bringing together the the world's experts from these different companies, from uh, all, from from the whole supply chain, from tier one uh, down to down to down to the component level, uh, and having this having this dialogue. Uh, I think the engineers who are working on those systems really recognize the benefit that can come from having this common language to be able to to, to, to talk and these common benchmarks. I, I, I think, you know, it's not so easy to convince uh, the, the, the more management level within those organizations that that's beneficial, but it's happened. And, and you do see it happening elsewhere with, with other, other standards work as well. So standards work is not sexy, but I think to answer your question, standards is where you can bridge that gap. So it's bringing the engineers who are working on those problems day to day, who really, really understand the technical topics and, and, and then bringing together the needs of the government or the regulator who has to have some kind of level of, 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 of uh, not control necessarily, but, but, but understanding that everybody is, is working towards the same goals. And I think you just have to do that with, with, with technology that's as complicated as this. You have to do that. I mean, there's so many, so many other standards across communications technology. Uh, you know, many, many, many standards where it's been beneficial to say, right, here's how we're going to measure this. Here's how we're all going to manufacture this, and then everybody who's the, who's competitive in the supply chain can focus on the value add above and beyond that, rather than reinventing the wheel. All right, that's great. That's a great summary that uh, sort of represents that that illustrates why your conference is a little different from others because this is an engineering conference for engineers and by engineers. Uh, absolutely, yeah. So that, that, that was, that's been our mantra from, from the start. And we, you know, we try really hard to talk to uh, everybody in that supply chain and understand uh, you know, what is, what is, uh, is going to be most helpful for them. Uh, in fact, we're doing that right now not not specifically with the topic area, but of course, we're, we're, the whole world has gone through uh, and is still going through a very difficult situation caused by the pandemic. We're working at home, supply chains have been disrupted, uh, labs are closed, everybody's very disrupted. And so within this, within Sense Media and the AutoSense team, we're, 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 we're opening up and having that dialogue about Okay, how can we best serve that engineering community as we go into 2021? Um, so, you know, I think we, you know, we are totally uh, recognize that we we need to adapt and we need to change and we need to respond to how the the, the daily lives and the the challenge the working challenges of our of our community have changed. Uh, so, I think we'll see some new things uh, and, and and some uh, some some new ways of supporting that industry coming uh, next year. Uh, but yeah, right now we're focusing on making the, the conference next week and over the course of the next few weeks uh, as productive a time as possible. Uh, time is so precious these days uh, and it's, it's very easy to, 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 to not be focused. Um, so we're, we're doing everything we can to, to, to make it uh, as interactive as possible 
uh, and to ensure that everybody gets as much as much value uh, and as well, you know, gets the opportunity to meet people and catch up with friends and all those nice things that we like to do when we when we go to a conference face to face. Yeah, you'd mentioned earlier that uh, you're actually going to have the sessions that they'll have, you know, an elapsed time for the session. And then you're asking the people, the panelists to just hang around in the room for a little while, just the, the same way they might in in real time, right? Real space. R right. Uh, absolutely. So, look, I'm not going to pretend that we can totally recreate everything that is great about a physical conference and meeting face to face online. No, of course, we can't replicate everything. But we can try to identify the things that people really appreciate and we can try to replicate those. Um, so, so yeah, as you said, we, we, we pre-record the presentations so that we can make sure there's no interruptions and no quality issues. But the speaker is live answering questions in the chat and in the, uh, the Q&A during the presentation. Then they come live on camera at the end of the presentation uh, and uh, we have a live Q&A. Uh, but then, yeah, the, the, the attendees in the room have the opportunity to stay behind uh, and talk individually or in a small group with, with the speaker, just like you might do at a conference. You know, there's always a group of, of very interested people who go up and, and, and lurk and, or queue at the front of the, the conference room. And I think that's, that's a really nice part about the conferences. You get to go and say hello and, uh, you know, it might be your, your idol that you've, you've, you've followed for years and, uh, you know, it's a finally a chance to meet that person. Um, so, yeah, we're trying to recreate those moments through the online platform. That was Rob Stead. The AutoSense Brussels Virtual Conference will have a series of presentations from September 14th to September 17th. It will then have a fairly full agenda of tutorials for the next four weeks. And the whole thing will wrap up with another set of presentations from October 13th to October 15th. That's right, a conference that lasts for almost one whole month. Now, that may seem like a long time, but industry marches on at a pace far more rapid than, for example, some art. Specifically, the performance of a piece called Organ, As Slow as Possible, which was written by the composer John Cage in 1985. The first time it was ever played, the performance began in 2001. That first performance is still in progress, and it will not be over until the year 2640. It was in the news this week because the piece had its first chord change in nearly seven years. So, with the right perspective, you can realize that a month of tutorials is practically a zippy schedule. Hey, that's it for the weekly briefing for the week ending September 11th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at www.eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with the links to the stories we mentioned, along with other multimedia. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. I have one last question for you, Rob. <laughs> so earlier, you referred to a quarry truck. 
and I want to find out whether you're being nice to us and using Americanisms, or do you actually call it a quarry lorry in England? <laughs> Great question. And I think quarry lorry, if I can pronounce it correctly, is a much better name. Uh, but but I would default to truck probably because of that tongue twister. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A quarry lorry. All right. A red, red and yellow quarry lorry. I like it. <laughs>